Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast and to one of our favorite episodes of the year. Uh, this is one we look forward to. I kind of wish we could do this multiple times every year, but that would defeat the purpose of the best books of 2019. <laughs> so here we are. We're going to go over some of our favorite books of the year, talk about why we liked them, and and uh, shortly after this, we're going to publish some blog posts that maybe break these down in some categories and you know, obviously for us, we need like three different categories of history to encapsulate the <laughs> books exactly that we really right. like. Uh, obviously, we want to hit on the best Christian books of the year. I like to make distinctions between technical Christian books, non-technical Christian books, more on the Christian life. And my dividing line between that is books that you can read while you're watching football on Sundays and books <laughs> that you cannot read while you're watching football on Sundays. Pretty practical um, guide. So we'll break all that down in some posts, but we just wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about some of these books. So... Why don't I kick it to you first? Describe your year in reading to us, and uh, what are some of your favorite books? Well, starting out this year, I start, I kind of kept a bit of a list this year, and you know my uh, reading is a lot of history, a lot of biography, and I'm not going to talk about these in any detail, but just to mention a few I thought were really good. I read a biography of Queen Victoria by Wilson. A Great Biography of Hitler by Kershaw. I just finished a biography of uh, Boris mm-hmm. by Gimson, Andrew Gimson, and it's probably the best one on uh, Boris Johnson that I have read. So I did some biographies, but I don't think any of those made my top list. Okay. And now this is going to shock you, but there's not much fiction on my top list. Are you counting or not counting political memoirs? Okay, political memoirs do have their own category of fiction. There's a lot of fiction in political memoirs. You know, (laughs) neither one of us are really heavy on fiction. The fiction that we do read is repetitive fiction. Like I, I, I don't know if you're the same way, but I've read the Harry Potter books and Lord of the Rings about every 18 months for the last seven or eight years. Uh-huh. Um, but I did stretch myself to read a little bit of fiction this year. Ah. So I read a book called Crossing to Safety, which is by Wallace Stegner. And it is it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. The prose is amazing. He was... Um, I don't know if he was an associate or a student or a teacher, but somehow influenced Wendell Berry, who's become very oh. popular uh-huh. for his essays, poetry. Um, anyway, Wall Stegner, Crossing to Safety, not only the best fiction book I read this year, but in all likelihood, the only fiction book that I read this year. <laughs> so I would like to put that on the list. Well, next year, I'm... Diving into poetry okay. in the first of the year, and I've lined up several books. There is a Polish, uh, he's passed away now, Szeszla Malosz, mm-hmm. and I'll probably be talking about him a little bit. I read one of his books. I've read a book of poetry. I'm going to dive into some international poetry. I felt like I needed to broaden myself, so mm-hmm. maybe not exactly the fiction like you think of fiction, but doing something a little bit different. I'm sure the English majors listening to the podcast are going to take issue with this, but I typically don't think of poetry as fiction. Right. I could be wrong on that. Yeah. I think of those as two separate categories. I, I agree. It's certainly its own category. I read two collections of, of poetry this year. <clears throat> the first one was by Rudyard Kipling in the Modern Library series, which uh-huh. are great, cheap volumes of poetry, loved his poetry, um, and just really enjoyed getting to experience and getting to read someone who writes in a way that I don't come into contact with very often. He's not a big rhymer. I think most most people that know a little bit about poetry think of rhyming, and again, most of our English majors out there think poetry is not about rhyming. Right. Uh, but I, I typically think of lyric poetry, and that is not what Kipling does. But he's vibrant and uh, has a lot to say through his poetry, does character sketches really well in his poetry. He does. And then I read a volume of Alexander Pope, which is a little bit more what you think about when you think of classic poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was very enjoyable as well. You may not remember this, but two years ago at Christmas, you gave me a small uh, volume of Kipling's poems. And it's on my bedside because I, I like to read that occasionally. I'm going to suggest a very controversial point of view here, but his poem, If, mm-hmm. may be one of the best 
that I have personally ever read. I realize it's a very subjective thing when it comes to poetry, but what a great poem. Well, changing course a little bit and getting as close to fiction as I will get, I thought that the book Let Me Finish, which is a political memoir by Chris Christie, Mm -hmm. was one of the best written, maybe one of the most honest and insightful. Uh, It was less a Mm tell-all than it was really a little insight into how policy gets made. So I thought Chris Christie did a really good job in his political memoir, Let Me Finish. That's interesting. I didn't come across that one. Um, but I didn't see him in the box at the Dallas Cowboys game, sitting with Jerry Jones this weekend. Uh, <laughs> That's right. He's, he's a big Dallas fan. Well, what were the best books? What were the most enjoyable books that you read this year? Uh, let's see. I've got several. One is I'm going to have to start with a book called Human Nature. It just came out by David Berlinski. Okay. If you know much about David Berlinski, he, he I would recommend a number of his prior books, particularly The Deniable Darwin. Now, I like David Berlinski for two reasons. First of all, he is a secular Jew, which means he's a-religious. Mm-hmm. He is a mathematician, which means he's he's on the right side of science. He's well-received in the fakes household. Well-received in the fakes household. He is also very well-read in philosophy and the sciences. And he's uh, he writes on in this book, Human Nature, is really asking the question, are there certain traits that are unique to all human beings through all of time, which is called the philosophical idea of essentialism. Is are there essential traits that every human being of all time has or not? And the prevailing point of view, believe it or not, to our listeners is no, that uh, human beings have and can be shaped according to whatever way you wish. So Berlinski takes that on in a very intelligent manner, but the, the added benefit of Berlinski is he has the wittiest insults uh-huh. without being vulgar, without uh-huh. name-calling. He has the wittiest insults of anyone I have ever read. Right. And so David Berlinski, you'll probably like anything that he's written, but Human Nature, to me, was a serious exploration of a very foundational topic. Yeah. And his... Uh I haven't read the book, but his interview with Ben Shapiro uh-huh. on this topic is a great intro if you want to uncover a little bit of what this book is about. And you get all of Berlinski's characteristic humor and cleverness and uh, all of his uh, sharp wit. Exactly. I'll tell you another one. I'm, I'm moving around because I've, I want to hit def- several uh, different topics, but Understanding Gender Dysphoria by Mark Yarhouse. And if you've listened to this before, you'll know that Mark Yarhouse is a psychologist who's appeared more than once in my list. This latest is Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and it has to do with transgender issues. It's from a Christian perspective, but when I say that, I don't mean that he's engaging the scriptures. He is a Christian bringing a perspective to how should you approach and understand. He really spends most of his time on understanding Mm -hmm. transgender issues. I thought it was very educational, very useful, and very thought-provoking. Yeah, definitely. Another one in the psychology arena for me was called The Upward Spiral. And I think I talked about this earlier in the year. This is a book by Dr. Alex Korb, K-O-R-B. And it basically gives you, it's not academic, but it's not a, a, an easy read in the sense that it really breaks down the neuroscience of your brain and the neuropsychology of your brain and comes away, though, with not a determinist point of view, like you are the slave of the chemicals in your brain. Mm-hmm. He really says, listen, what you do can influence the chemicals in your brain. And there are some very easy, simple things in this book that can help you battle anxiety and depression He's not against counseling, he's not against medication, but he simply says there are many things you can do to own your own neuropsychology. I found it to be very useful, very accessible. Interesting and pertinent for a lot of what's going on today. You know, here's one that you read, I don't remember how long ago you read this, so this is not a new book. It's called Christian Beliefs. 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know. It's by Wayne Grudem. Mm-hmm. I reread that. It's very small. I reread that this year in conjunction with uh, somebody I was uh, doing this with, and it made me realize what a great grounding in the essential 
orthodox Christian beliefs that it is. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that book. Uh, in the theological side, I have a couple of honorable mentions. Okay. One comes from a Church of God theologian named James Earl Massey. Okay. James Earl Massey has yep. passed away, but he wrote a book. It's a collection of his work called Views from the Mountain. And there are a number of his works in there that I found very interesting. And then one that I had to slog through a little bit because it's a collection of articles edited by D.A. Carson called The Enduring Authority of Christian Scripture. It is as academic and as deep as you want to be. And uh, so I don't recommend it lightly, but if you're really into the idea of what does the authority of scriptures mean and looking at it from a number of angles... The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures by Carson is uh, is also very good. Yeah, I know we're going to mention this later in the episode, but I've been thinking about reading all these lists of best books. Um, there have been a few people that have pointed to it being the end of the decade. And yeah. the books that really influenced thinking and culture, biblical studies. And then in addition to that, just the books that you enjoyed the most or profited from the most over the last 10 years, uh-huh. I would definitely put The Enduring Authority of Christian Scripture in that category. Mm-hmm. Now, it is a tome. It is yeah. 1,400 pages, essays from scholars in almost every discipline. Mm-hmm. But it is a really, really important book. It's a good book. It's worth slogging through if you're interested in that kind of theological, historical understanding of the the authority of Scripture, because I think that is one of the issues that's the most important in the last 10 years, right. is the challenge in evangelicalism, and this is an age-old challenge with a modern expression, the, the age-old challenge of understanding what it means, not just for the Bible to be inerrant, but for the Bible to be authoritative. Right, exactly. What does it mean that what the Bible says controls what we believe and what we do in the church? whether that's through issues of church polity, whether that's through adapting to the new needs and opportunities in church growth, whether that's on issues like sexuality, whether that's in how we just behave in the workplace, how we you know, believe that the home should be run, and all of that stuff is, is under the, the topic of biblical authority, and Christians have different ideas as to what that means. But so often we get down the road in those arguments without talking about what authority actually is and how the Bible is authoritative. Um, And I think we'd save ourselves a lot of grief in the arguments that we have, intramural arguments among Christians, Uh if we had a more consistent understanding of biblical authority. And that book is the cornerstone, I think, of the argument about biblical authority. I would agree. You know, the Bible has not escaped our deconstructionist movement in the last, oh, probably a little over 100 years. For example, what you see most obviously today is deconstructing the authority of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. There are originalists who say it meant something then and it should continue to mean the same thing. Now you see folks on the other side that say this document has a few guiding principles to it, but they can almost largely be modified to fit current needs. That's a very different view of what it means to be authoritative. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the foundational divide behind most of the movement between conservatives and liberals in Christianity is is a lack of agreement and I would say even a lack of understanding uh-huh. of what it means for the Bible to be authoritative. I right. agree with you. Definitely. Well, on the psychological front, I'll tell you one that impacted me a lot and a lot of people that read it was A Failure of Nerve by uh-huh. Edwin Friedman. We've spoken about this before. Definitely. He is a uh, not a Christian psychologist, but it's really a book on leadership. And the key idea is leading with a non-anxious presence. And I find that the scripture supports that idea in many ways. In other words, the scripture is very comfortable with that idea. Then finally, here's one that gets right down to practicality. One of the best books I read as a Christian man and a Christian husband is How to Exasperate Your Wife I realize you're all saying, wait a minute, that's a natural talent that I Uh have. I don't need to read a book about that. Called How to Exasperate Your Wife by Doug Wilson. That is an excellent book. It is a great book on just how to be a Christian man, how to be a Christian husband. Yeah, for all the things about Doug Wilson, and uh, you know, he's one of those guys that makes you pull your hair out because you love a lot of the stuff that he does and you hate some of the stuff that he does. And you love some of the stuff that he writes and you hate some of the stuff that he writes. And I think he loves that. He loves that he is known that way. 
that book and his stuff on family is really, really good. His stuff on manhood. He's got a book called Father Hunger about uh, the phenomenon of fatherlessness, insecurity, anxiety. Right. Uh, that's really good. But that, that one is a short one. It's really good. It's practical. Mm-hmm. It's refreshing to hear somebody have a biblical stance on what it means to be a man and a husband. And uh, even as a single guy, I've read that book and love that book. Right. Um, yeah, that's a really good one. Those are my top seven, just recapping in case you didn't, uh, of the ones that I felt like would be diverse enough. The Christian Beliefs by Grudem, The Upward Spiral by Korb, Understanding Gender Dysphoria by Yarhouse, Human Nature by Berlinski, A Failure of Nerve by Friedman, Let Me Finish by Chris Christie, and How to Exasperate Your Wife by Doug Wilson. So those kind of floated to the top of the ones that, frankly, had the most impact on me Mm -hmm. and were spread out across different genres. Yeah. How about you? What were you reading this year? Well, uh, you know, as opposed to last year, I felt like last year about half of our list overlapped. Yeah. And that's good because it's always fun to get to talk about the books that we both read, but uh-huh. I don't know if we have any of the same books this year on our list uh, because we just read different things this year, which is which is also kind of fun. Uh-huh. But I would start out and, and just run through a couple that I really enjoyed and then maybe spend a moment talking about a, a few special books from this year. The first one that I'd recommend is called Cultural Engagement, mm-hmm. and it's by Shatra and Pryor, Karen Swallow Pryor. And the book is a series of essays about cultural engagement and all kinds of cultural and social issues. And and the point of the book is to, to basically find the limits of Christian disagreement on certain topics, whether that be like the abortion debate or whether that be gun control. It's kind of the boundaries of orthodoxy, yes. if you will. Yes. Uh, uh, updated, well-researched, contemporary um, vision for cultural engagement for Christians. Um, another Christian book that I thought was really good this year was called Faith Among the Faithless by Mike Cosper. And it is a, it, one of the reasons I really liked it is it's such a unique kind of Christian book. In some ways, it's doing what Peterson did so well with books like Under the Unpredictable Plant with the book of uh, uh-huh. Jonah, Jonah uh-huh. um, and Five Smooth Stones, uh, with with some of the minor prophets, this book is about the book of Esther, and it's somewhere between a commentary and a sermon series. But it has an eye towards the social, political, cultural implications of the book of Esther, and so he's bringing out things from the text that I had never heard before. Uh-huh. Uh, talking about how if you look at the main characters in the story, one of the things you realize is they had completely accommodated and assimilated into the culture that they were a part of and away from their Jewish roots. And part of the story of Esther is repenting and recovering their faithfulness to God when they had been assimilated. Mm -hmm. And that's an angle I just really wasn't familiar with in that story, but that's the kind of thing that he's talking about in this book. It's it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, Another book that just came out is by Todd Wilson, it's called Tending Soul, Mind, and Body. And it's a collection of essays and chapters by various people about what it means to have a more holistic version of formation and sanctification in the church. So how do we understand not just behavioral modification, not just worldview change, but tending to every part of the human being as we grow into conformity with Christ. Mm -hmm. So there's a great essay by Kevin Van Hooser in there, several authors I've never come into contact with before. Uh, There's an essay about how change takes place in Paul's mind in 1 Corinthians that's really good. Uh Um, So a lot of different stuff, but that, that book is really worth reading. In terms of leadership, I read a couple of leadership books this year. Most leadership books are never going to make my top ten. Uh You take maybe one good thing or two away from them. But this year, and this book didn't come out this year, but uh, the book is called The Captain Class by Sam Walker. And this combines two of my favorite things, leadership and sports. And what he does is he goes through the greatest sports teams of all time. And he has all these criteria that he uses. What makes a team... Well, you know, all the players have to be on the field at the same time. You know, you have to play another team. It can't right. just be an individual performance. And so 
he sets this up and he says, if you look at the 17, I think is what he comes up with, greatest teams of all time, what makes them really great? Mm-hmm. And he goes through a couple of the characteristics you would think, talent, coaching, everything that we would think goes into that. And he says, actually, the only thing that runs through all of these teams is the character of the captain of the team. He's like, that is the thing that makes the most difference in having a winning team is the character of the captain. Are they selfless? Do they believe in the team? Are they good enough to carry the team when they need uh-huh. them? You know, and, and he goes through a lot of different qualities uh, that I won't give away, but the book is fantastic. It's a great vision of leadership. A lot of it applies to a Christian context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for anybody working on a team where you're not clearly the one in charge of the team, you're not positionally in authority, this is a great book. Uh, Mark Sayers' book this year, Reappearing Church, continuation uh-huh. of what he started with Disappearing Church and the book Strange Days. This one is about revival. What will it take to have revival in the church? What does it look like to have the fire of revival and the Spirit of God at work in the church? That one's really good. Of course, anything that Sayers writes is going to be Yeah, I read the first really two good. you mentioned, and I thought they were really good critiques mm-hmm. in a really in a, an objective way, not in a nasty way, but critiques of the cultural engagement inside the church. I'm anxious to read Reappearing Church. Uh, the, the last one I'll just mention uh, on this list is a book called NFL Century by Joe Horrigan. And, you know, it's the 100-year anniversary of the NFL, NFL uh-huh. uh, or at least of national of, of football leagues. Right. And it's, it's not the 100th year since the merger, but... You know, I didn't know a lot about the history of the NFL. I thought that the NFL 100 with Collinsworth and Belichick has been really, really good. Uh-huh. Uh, and just their knowledge of the game is good. This book walks through the history of the league. And I I didn't know that football basically started out as a series of club teams, city club teams. Yeah, like the Green Bay Packers, right. for uh, example. Of which you had working class guys who uh-huh. would basically play football on the weekends and uh, then they get they start to get paid, and you know the first big football star was Jim Thorpe, and uh-huh. in this little cluster of, of of teams in Ohio, he becomes the best player, and their team was the best team, and they start raising money, and anyway the the way the story of how the NFL went from an extracurricular activity to the greatest league and and sports uh, set of franchises in the world, uh-huh. most profitable in the world, is a great story. And this guy's a great writer. Uh, it, it was really enjoyable to read. Um, now, I want to spend some time on probably my two favorite books of the year. And this is going to sound a little bit like a broken record to people that listen to us talk about books. But I couldn't go without mentioning there's been a lot of great books in the Winston Churchill oh, world. Oh, I've read several come this, out year. this year. Yeah. In fact, one that I would suggest now is probably my, my new... Um, first look at Churchill. I used to think that that book by Paul Johnson uh-huh. was probably the best place to start with Churchill. I know you've read and, and recommended that one as well. Um, but I'm, I'm always looking for ways to uh, recommend Churchill books to people that don't that aren't going to sit down and read Andrew Roberts' thousand-page biography. Right. Of course, I think both of us feel like that's the best of the Churchill volume. I think so. Um, but this book, I'm looking at the author right now. This book is great because it doesn't just have stuff about Churchill. It covers the entire time period uh, that he was alive and has lots of pictures and uh, was was funded out of the archives at Chartwell. Oh, okay. And so they have access to all kinds of things from Churchill's private life from um, his house, pictures of things that he used, mm-hmm. and tells the story of Winston Churchill. Um, and that was just called Churchill from the Chartwell Trust. Other books this year, my top two books are, first of all, Leadership in War by Andrew Roberts. 
And I just think everybody should read anything that Andrew Roberts writes. And he's an he's an amazing writer. I think it's I don't think it's unfair at all to say that he is the greatest living historian of the World War II era. Right. I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. His work on Hitler and Churchill, he started out with the, the biography of Lord Salisbury, his thousand page biography of Churchill. But this book is a little bit different for him. He was going around the country and the world, for that matter, teaching about leadership in war and giving these lectures on war leaders uh-huh. and developing a, a theory of leadership and what makes good leadership in wartime. And so this book is nine chapters about leaders during war. And you get the best and you get the worst. You get Napoleon, you get Churchill, you get Hitler's uh, in there. Hitler, uh-huh. Stalin, Margaret Thatcher is in there, uh-huh. uh, Lord Nelson is in there. It's just a great swath of leaders and uh, several American leaders as well. And what he's talking about is what is it that makes a person successful under pressure? Mm. What is it that makes a person successful when the odds are stacked against them? And a lot of it is belief in their cause. Uh, It's the ability to triumph when everybody is against you. But then there's also little things like a fantastic memory is uh-huh. one of those things that leaders in war typically have. And right. so it's just it's a really good book. It's easy to read. I read it one chapter a night before I went to bed uh-huh. over the course of two weeks. It's and it's an easy read, but it's it's really, really good. The probably the best book I read this year is a book called Hymns of the Republic by S. C. Gwynn. And I first encountered Gwen when I read the book Rebel Yell, which is a biography of Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this guy is just an amazing writer. Well, that was um, certainly a good book. I it was haven't a really read anything good else book. he wrote. And the thing that you get, so if you study Stonewall Jackson, for example, what you get is the South's vision of the war on the one hand, uh-huh. and you only get the war until halfway through when Stonewall Jackson dies. Right. So you don't get a very complete picture of number one, what the war was actually about, right, and two, the way that the war resolved in the end. So what he does in this book is he begins with a year left in the war when Ulysses S. Grant takes over as the general of the armies of the Union. And uh, the threads that he pulls together in this book are pretty amazing. Uh, Gwen is just a really good storyteller in the sense that he always has an eye on the main storyline. Uh-huh. So the main storyline... So you don't get lost yeah, in the details. In the main storyline, you're following Grant and Lincoln's relationship as they navigate winning the war in the last year of 1864 to 1865. Uh-huh. And along the, along the way, what he does is he brings in characters... And then gives you their backstory to explain what they do along that bigger storyline. So, for example, he's bringing in, of course, you have Robert E. Lee and uh, the generals on the north and the south. uh, But you also have people like Clara Barton, Uh uh, who most people don't know what Clara Barton actually did. And her legacy, both with... Um, nursing soldiers in the field and, and the medical side of it, but then also discovering a prisoner of war camp in the South that's become very famous as a monument to just how brutal the Civil War was. Right. Um, you get really cool history of, of, you know, like Appomattox Courthouse. I don't think I knew this until I read that book. Is the actual name of the town. Where, the place that they met was not a courthouse. It, the place is called Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, and it was at this guy's house who, a couple of years before, had actually lived right by the first battle of Bull Run. So I remember this. He, yeah. he gets caught in the conflict. Bullets are flying by. He takes cover. Robert E. Lee sets up his camp inside this guy's house. And after the battle is over, this guy thinks to himself, I've got to get away from here. Because battles are raging all around. He's going to lose everything. Uh So he moves to this little town called Appomattox Courthouse, which is northern uh, from where he was up in Virginia. So it's funny that how many years and months later, a few years later, uh, when Lee and Grant meet for the final time and Lee finally surrenders, 
they use this guy's new house to negotiate <laughs> the surrender of the Confederacy or of the, that Confederate <laughs> army to Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, it's just he, he points out those kinds of little amazing things in it. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a great writer, but but the reason I think this was my favorite book because this was a really good book of history. Uh-huh. But the reason I think this is my favorite book is because I think it's one of the most important books of the year, and I say that because. History is a declining field in America. And we harp on this a lot, but it's not because we're just history buffs or something. Right. It's because I really believe that the way to navigate the present is by understanding the past, both what happened in the past, why it worked, why it didn't, and how we got to the point where we are right, right now. And my worry is that in America today... No one understands how we got to the place where we are right now. Right. That's Too a good often, I feel like all of history is told through the lens of the civil rights movement, which is an extremely important time period in American history. Right. And, and I think it does color the way that we think about everything in America right now, whether that means the way that we see race relations, whether that means the way that we see uh, the LGBTQ movement, who's claiming to be the heirs of the civil rights movement, right. whether that's the way we see the way the, con- the Constitution is interpreted, the last big piece of legislation, amendment-wise, in the Constitution to think about Lyndon Johnson guiding that legislation through Congress. Uh-huh. I mean, all of that, Title IX, a lot of it can be seen through the civil rights movement. But what do you see the civil rights movement through? And that's where I think there's a lot of history lacking in America right now. We don't understand why the country was founded. We don't understand what caused the states to secede from each other and conduct a civil war. Right. We don't understand why the country was able to preserve itself. And, and the things that are pressing to me is we don't understand why people felt like it was worth quitting their jobs and voluntarily enlisting to fight for our country in World War One, in World War Two, in Korea, and in Vietnam. Now, some people, you know, have talked to people that have fought in those conflicts, and obviously, uh-huh. Korea and Vietnam are really different than the World Wars. But it's worth investigating why those wars were different. Right. Why the war in Afghanistan is really different than those. Really different than the World War. Really, really different than the Revolution and the Civil War. Um, and what Gwyn does is he tells the story of the end of the Civil War in living color with real people. Yeah. For example, one of the things that we don't realize is Abraham Lincoln is a is a hero now in America. And he's a hero that's claimed by a lot of different factions of people. Right. But one of the main threads in the book is it was not a foregone conclusion that Lincoln would be reelected in 1864 because he was so unpopular in the way that things were going with slavery, with uh, the way that the Northern Army had fought, with the way that the generals and the War Department were conducting their business, it was not at all a foregone conclusion. In fact, if if Grant had not started winning battles, Lincoln, Lincoln probably would out. not have been reelected president. Yeah, the war was going very poorly for them for quite some time. It's, that's exactly right. And Gwynn does a great job of walking you through the tension of and the decisions that were made on account of the fact that Lincoln was unpopular and may not have been reelected. The other thing is he deals honestly with the race question when it comes to the Civil War. And, you know, there's there's the adage that people who know nothing about the Civil War believe that it was about slavery. Uh People that know a little bit about the Civil War believe that it was about states' rights. Uh And people that know a lot about the Civil War know that it was about slavery. (laughs) And uh, That is very well said. That's something that Gwynn does really well is he walks you through a lot of the implicit worldview and uh, ideological issues, both on the South and in the North. And, uh, you know, with, with taking monuments down and stuff today of Robert right. E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and, and uh, I think some of that is justified. I mean, I can't even imagine being uh, an African-American having to go to a school called Robert E. Lee. I, I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, Robert E. Lee was a very complicated person, mm-hmm. as was Abraham Lincoln, as was Ulysses S. Grant. These were real people making history, not moral caricatures of light and darkness and evil and good. And it gives you the sense that that's the way history happens today. 
we, we live in a culture that really struggles with nuance. You're either good or you're bad. Right. And you either are right on every issue and align with me, or we disagree on one thing and so we can't agree on anything. Right. But history is made by broad coalitions of people who disagree on lots of different things. Exactly. Um, you know, in some ways, you have Robert E. Lee, who is more like Ulysses S. Grant than Ulysses S. Grant is like Abraham Lincoln. But right. Grant and Lincoln are able to overlook some of their disagreements to fight for something that was transcendent, mm-hmm. which was the unity of the nation right. and uh, what coalesced into the unity of the people of the nation, uh, white, black, Indian, everything in between, uh, to produce the America that we have going into World War One. So I think that was my favorite book for the reason that it is important to read that kind of book. And this is a great example of a book that deals with the issues that we're dealing with today. And it's really good history and really easy to read. So that would probably be my book of the year. Wow, that's a compelling case for that book. I would agree with this. I think the first clue that you're dealing with someone who has no understanding or nuance of a situation is when they can boil everything down to the good guys and the bad guys. You have the North, which are a bunch of freedom-loving, constitution-supporting, just wonderful people, and the South, a bunch of racist, terrible people. If that's our view of history, we know better than that in our own lives. We certainly need to know better than that in the life of, of our history. And I think understanding the nuances of history a little bit, you realize, wait a minute, Ecclesiastes is right. There truly is nothing new under the sun. Right. What we're living now has been lived through before, and there are important lessons to take from it. But I think when you boil everything down to the simple good guys and bad guys, you you really have nothing left except violent confrontation, Mm -hmm. whether that's verbally violent confrontation or, as in the Civil War, literally violent confrontation. Right. Yeah. That's. I think that's... uh, I think that is the reason we read a, a lot of history. Right. Um, you know, it's one thing to enjoy, but it, there's another part of it that I think is so important for mm-hmm. education. You know, I was reading a, I was rereading the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon. Gibbon? Which I know you have, you have animosity. Towards. I have heartburn with that, yes. Um, but there's this line in Gibbon that, that I think is really instructive for education, for the study of history, for reading in general. Uh-huh. He says... So in the Roman Republic, you go from Caesar and Julius Caesar and Augustus into a string of pretty bad emperors towards right. the end of the first century. And then you come out of that in 180-ish for another 50 years or so into the Antonines, which are probably the best season of the Roman Empire. I think right. the emperors Hadrian, Trajan, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, uh, Pius uh, Antoninus. Antoninus. Yeah, yeah, Pius. Those are probably the best. So he makes this point that in between the two good times in the Roman Empire, what preserved the Republic? And he said one of the things that preserved the Republic is that the people were still being educated by the greatest authors of Greece. Hmm. So that you have a person pre-Julius Caesar and a person post-Nero who are both reading Plato's Republic. Right. They're both reading the plays of Euripides. They're both reading Aristotle. Uh, and that education is what preserved them through a dark season of leadership mm-hmm. and, and rulers of Rome. And I can't help but think about what that implications are of that for America. I don't think anybody believes that we are being ruled well in America, whether you think... It's the Democrats' fault or the Republicans' fault or Trump's fault or Pelosi's fault or whoever. I don't think anybody is saying this is a golden age of leadership in America. (laughs) Good point. And what is it that's going to sustain us? The same thing that sustained us 150 years ago and I hope will sustain us 100 years in the future, which is the founding ideals of America, the greatest country the world's ever seen. And even as that's unpopular to say right now. Right. But the ideas of liberty and uh, the rights that are guaranteed by God... Uh, the ability to work for something and achieve it, uh, the ability to have the freedom to change your station economically and socially, uh, and the protection of other people, right, both foreign and, and domestic. I think those are really important reasons to read history. Um, 
And so in the last few minutes here, I, I just wanted to ask you this. A lot of people are wrapping up the uh, end of the decade in reading, and it made me think about what are some of the most impactful books that you've read in the last 10 years? You know, not just wow. what were the books yeah. that you read this year that were good, because I don't know that 2019 was the greatest year in reading. It might have been, but right. you know, what about the last 10? What are the books that have really stuck with you, impacted your thinking? What stands out to you? Uh, over the last few years. Wow, that's a that's a tough question. Well, one that you and I've talked about a little bit, and I'll kind of co-opt this from something you brought up earlier. I do think the uh, Jordan Peterson phenomenon has been. It hasn't impacted me personally as much as it has been an impact to really slow down some of the progressive liberalism. He's Canadian psychologist. His most accessible book is 12 Rules for Life. Mm -hmm. Probably most often engaged, though, through podcasts or speaking. And he speaks to, he's been accused of a lot of things, and I'll just leave that here for a moment. But what I think he's really done is he speaks a basic message. It's a secular message, but he speaks a basic message of uh, take responsibility for yourself. Treat yourself like someone worth caring for speak truthfully to others, uh, find a purpose and pursue it. In other words, some really basic foundational ideas that, frankly, aren't very popular in progressive circles. And he has virtually exploded. Mm-hmm. And I believe he's the tip of an iceberg as well. Yeah, yeah I think the whole intellectual dark web phenomenon, uh-huh. that's Peterson, and think about like Quillet as a site, and right. Ben Shapiro... And there, there's tons of these guys, and I, I'm not going to list all of them because I'd leave somebody out, but those guys have made it socially acceptable to be um, an intellectual on the right. Now, I wouldn't say that they are conservative. I would say that they're more libertarian. Right. But it's it's socially acceptable to be on the right and intellectually acceptable to be on the right again. And I think that's in large part to, to the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. He hit on something, and we've written on this and talked about it before, but he hit something, especially in young men, that neither the liberal uh, social agenda nor the conservative church nor social clubs or institutions right. of any kind were really hitting. And when he did, it caught fire. And I think you've seen a lot of good come from it. I obviously don't think Peterson is is what we would consider a Orthodox Christian. Right. But I would say he is preaching a message of transcendence. There is something more transcendently meaningful about your life than just the nuts and bolts of material existence. So his whole Jungian psychology and the archetypes and right. the desire to stand up for something that's meaningful and give your life to it really resonates in a way that I think is powerful and informative about our culture. I would add uh, books that have that have really impacted me over the last 10 years. Um, I think James K.A. Smith's whole project of desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom, you are what you love. Uh-huh. As, as much as I think that, that Smith gets a ton right about a lot of things and and definitely is wrong about a few things, that movement changed the Christian world. Uh-huh. Just just the fact that we understand what, what it means to be a desiring being, uh, the fact that we're engaging with Christian Smith's uh, vision of moralistic therapeutic deism, right. uh, the fact that we're talking about how to transform desire as opposed to action. I think all of that, thick and thin practices and the revival of liturgy, the meaning of liturgy, I think he really altered the course of main, I would say mainline and evangelical Christianity with those books. The interesting thing is I think his most important book is probably How Not to Be Secular. Which is a distillation of Charles Taylor's yes. tome, A Secular Age. And uh, just talking about the imminent frame, the fact that we live in a right. world that's been disenchanted, yes. um, the materialist paradigm that we're battling against as Christians. I-, I think that has been one of the most impactful things over the last decade. Another thing I would add would be 
I think N.T. Wright's book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, uh-huh. it's, it is a, it's an academic book. And for academics, sometimes it's not quite as technically engaging as some of the other Pauline scholarship. But I do think it is a fountain for understanding Paul's world through a worldview lens. So mm-hmm. the fact that Paul wasn't just a theologian, he had a story that he was living in. And that the Bible presents a story that we are living in. And teasing that out as a theological vision for the world from Paul, I think that was that that was a really important book. Any anything else you can think of from the last decade? Well, I'm just gonna give you one from a very personal point of view. I know you've read it. I think you read it in grad school. And uh, this book has stuck with me, and I think it's non-technical enough that it would have a very wide audience. And I, I doubt anyone has heard about this except you or me. But I have come back to this book, and I, you know, I measure how good a book is by how much I've dog-eared it and how many highlights it has. Uh-huh. Okay, this is a blast from your past. Plagues of the Mind by oh, Bruce yeah. Thornton. Oh, yeah. A classic scholar. And it's Plagues of the Mind by Bruce Thornton. And it, what it will do is it takes some of the myths of our age, a few of the key myths, and it really just intelligently looks at them and breaks down some of the things that our culture believes. I'm probably not doing this book justice in what I just said, but it has a few big ideas that you realize as a Christian, I'm on a different side of this big idea than the cultural norm is. Right. The way he flays Disney movies in that book, I will never get over uh, for their cultural appropriation. So I don't know that this has made a big impact, but it impacted my... It, I won't say it impacted my thinking as much as it clarified things I felt and knew, and he, he said it very well. So an obscure book, nonetheless, I, I found it to be really impactful to me. Yeah, just on a personal note, I, I think of two authors that were really impactful to me in the last decade. The first one is Jerry Bridges, who passed away this decade. Right. And his books like The Blessing of Humility. Of course, The Pursuit of Holiness is the first book I ever read from him, which was probably in 2009, Uh uh, because I was a sophomore in college when I read, when I discovered him for the first time. Um, But there's so many great books that he wrote. I think his his life and his ministry, one of my favorite books of last year was God Took Me by the Hand, Mm -hmm. which was a memoir of his life. Uh, And then the, the other big person was Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. And I think Spurgeon on the Christian life is still one of the best books as an introduction to him and just for your own spiritual life. Right. To be encouraged and inspired by Spurgeon's life, his his zeal for the Word of God, for evangelism, all that he was able to accomplish in, through the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, you know, I just think one of the most powerful passages I've read this decade is the opening of that book where the casket of Spurgeon is going through the streets of London and there's just tens of thousands of people who are there to see him. And there's an open Bible on the casket that is open to the verse that, that from Isaiah that he converted. And it says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And just the picture of that going down the streets wow. of London is a really yeah. powerful picture. And that's how the book opens. Um, and then it, it talks about his life. That, that, and, and reading his sermons, his books... Letters um, to his students is yes. one that I used as devotional reading this year. Yeah, even his prayers. Banner Truth has a great little book on Spurgeon's prayers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That was that was really impactful for me this decade. Um, but if I had to pick a book of the decade, and I have a hunch that if you had to pick a book of the decade, we might pick the same one. I think that Andrew Roberts' Churchill biography is the most enjoyable book that I read this decade. I read it once last year. I read it once this year. I just think it is one of the best books that's ever been written. That probably is an exaggeration, but yeah. I, I really, really loved it. I enjoyed it. It's a great book. Well, you know, I would probably agree with that. I may not like the writing quite as much as you do, but let me put it this way. It knocked uh, Martin Gilbert's one-volume Churchill off the pedestal for yeah. me, and that's not an easy thing to do. And so I do agree. Robert's uh, everything he writes is good. And that was just very well done. Yeah, I mean, I think the intro of Manchester's The Last Lives is probably still the best thing that's been written about Churchill. That first 40 pages or so where he talks about uh, the Germans having taken over. You need to be this kind of man. 
Oh. And in London, there was such a man. That's probably the best thing I've ever read on Churchill. But book length, Manchester is good. The three volume is good. It took me all of 2017 to read that. But Well, and Andrew Manchester, and the connection is really interesting because Manchester understands, and in that introduction, talks about it was a time that needed a man who was called by destiny. Right. And, of course, Churchill thought of himself as being a man of destiny, and then Robert's book is is entitled yes. Walking with, with Destiny, destiny yeah. which is he, he really captures the essence of Winston Churchill and the essence of the age. Right. He is a biographer. I was going to mention this when you were talking earlier. Somebody uh, else I'd recommend to you if you are a history buff about wars is Victor Davis Hanson. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't disagree with you about Andrew Roberts. He is the best biographer, and there are several good ones, so that's saying something. Victor Davis Hanson wrote a book that I read this year called The Second World Wars, mm-hmm. plural, and he really uh, does a good job of breaking down our traditional understanding of good guys versus bad guys, and the Second World War was actually a number of, of wars going on at the same time. And there were overarching sides, you know, the right. good sides. But it was well done. I first was introduced to Victor Davis Hanson in his history of the Peloponnesian War many yeah. years ago. And I thought, this guy's good. And then I rediscovered him just a few years ago Yeah, writing now. But, uh, you know... You're right. I have read Andrew Roberts' book more than once, and that probably says something. Yeah. Well, we can talk about this forever, uh, but it's been a good year in books. We'll include the books in the in the notes of the podcast. Thank you guys for listening and uh, for tuning into the So We Speak podcast this year. We will see you in the new year in 2020 on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.